All right. Hey, you know, I probably don't need this, but uh, this is what a shovel looks like for those of you who haven't been out of the house yet. Your driveway and your yard are probably going to need it, but let's just change this. I've just come in from snow, from shoveling the blizzard, which at the time we taped this is not manifest yet, but I have every confidence that we're all enjoying at home a nice Sunday morning in front of the fireplace. Maybe I picture a a hot chocolate or maybe a coffee. I've got a tea here, and we can just enjoy the Word of God together. We're actually very blessed that we have this camera system, that we have uh, Jeremy in the tech department. We have the things that we need to be able to get a message out into, into the world, a message that I think is going to be enlightening. Get it? Enlightening? Um, never mind. It goes over like crickets in an empty sanctuary, by the way. But I know you're laughing out there at home, so I'm going to go with that. Um, I, am, I am electrified to be bringing this message to you today. See, I didn't use excited. Well, I just kind of did, but not really. I, I've got goosebumps, and maybe that's because of the cold outside, but I, I, I just can't wait to get you this message. Now, if you, if you didn't catch last week's message, please go back and do that. You can do that through the web player. You can do that on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, directly through our website. You can go back and check the first message of this series where I kind of lay the groundwork for the idea that Jesus is the light come into the world in order to overcome darkness. And as we ramp up to Easter, that's going to be our focus this year. Our focus is is Jesus bringing the light into a world that so desperately needs it. If you've been paying attention at all, you've been looking around and you see a world that is desperate for the light. And thankfully, we have the word of God which promises us that the light is coming. And Jesus is that light we now know but we have this eager anticipation. His first coming has happened. He came in the flesh, but we anticipate that second coming. And we'll talk more about that later, but let's get right into the message. As Pastor Gabe said, thank you, Pastor Gabe, for doing the announcements for us. Um, Our series is called A Light Out of the Darkness, and that comes from Scripture, and I'll share that with you a little bit later, but the idea, again, is that Jesus is the light. This week's message specifically is going to be a light promised, and then the light has come. Promised in terms of prophecy, and we'll talk about that again more as we go in. Now, last week, again, we talked about um, the idea of Lent, the idea of the, the Christian observance of Lent. Some churches very much observe, and they make it a very formal thing, some less so, but I think we should still have at least an understanding of what Lent is in the Christian tradition. Now, we are currently, on Sunday, we are in day 22 of the 40 days of Lent. So we're actually over halfway there um, in terms of, of observing Lent. Now, originally, Lent was a time of prayer and of fasting and of preparation for new believers to be baptized. The early church, starting all the way back in the first century church, they started this tradition of doing that and it became formalized in about 300 or so A.D. Um, but it was a time, again, then of prayer and fasting and preparation for baptism. Today, it's very much the same thing, but we observe it overall as just this time of repentance and preparing your heart for the risen Messiah that we celebrate 
on Easter Sunday. And so it's just a time where we refocus, self-examination, reflection, all these things that we do to be intentional about getting our hearts ready. But what I want to point out to you is that it's also a time where we should be um, aware Maybe focused is the wrong word. We don't want to focus too much on on spiritual warfare, but we want to be aware of it. And so it's a time of just being aware that it is also a time of daily battle. In fact, in many ways, an increasing battle of spiritual warfare. Now, remember, the 40 days of the Lent period signify the time when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy as he was preparing to enter into his time of ministry, the enemy saw that as a time. Jesus is weak. Jesus has been fasting. He's ready, but now may be a time when I can tempt him. And the devil comes in and tries to tempt Jesus, and Jesus refutes everything through the power of the word. That's one reason why we study the word so much. But we know then that there is this tie-in between spiritual warfare, the temptation, the lies of the enemy, and the observance of Lent, which again is just this preparation time leading up to Easter. They go hand in hand, and a lot of times they're, they're separated. I don't think we do justice to Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross unless we include that element in what we celebrate on Easter. So the first scripture, I'll just read it to you. This goes back again to last weekend, Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That just lays out very very straightforward that that time, that's when spiritual warfare began for Jesus right then. Whether he experienced it in his whole life previous, we don't know from scripture, but we do know it was hard right then. In this time of of, of weakness and self-deprivation, being out in the desert and isolation, maybe more than anything else, the enemy swooped in and, and tried to attack. And Satan has always been associated with this idea of darkness. Jesus has been associated with light, Satan with the darkness. Two sides of the story there, and we need to understand both sides. In fact, if we go back to this, let's look at at Jesus himself commissioning Paul. Paul, probably the greatest evangelist missionary uh, that ever lived and, and the author of the majority of the New Testament On the road to Damascus is where Saul, who later became Paul, had his encounter with Jesus. Life-changing, absolutely life-rocking, life-changing encounter with Jesus. Jesus says, I have come to appoint you as a servant and a witness. So Jesus meets Saul at the time and says, I have come to appoint you as a servant and a witness. And it goes on to say this then. This is, this is recorded in Acts. Acts 26, verses 17 through 18. I'll just read it for you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. As we know, Paul had to escape by the skin of his teeth many times as he was being run out of town for sharing the gospel message. And at that time, mostly because he was an enemy to nearly everybody because of his persecution to them. So Jesus came to save him, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So the very people Jesus is rescuing him from, that's who he's going to send him back to. To open their eyes so that they may not, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sacrificed by faith in me. Now, 
That's exactly the reason that Jesus said he was commissioning Paul to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light. Right then and there, that encapsulates the reason. And Satan's goal, Satan's goal has always been to keep you away from the light. Always. That's his primary. I want to keep you in the darkness, to phrase it another way. He's always wanted to do that. Jesus came and Jesus said this, his own words, John 12, 46. First scripture, I think we have it down below. I have come as light into the world so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Jesus himself said, that's why I came, so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Now, we maybe need to take a step back here really quick. If light is considered desirable and darkness is to be avoided, I think we should be rock solid on exactly what defines those two conditions, don't you? If one is so desirable and to be pursued and to be gravitated towards and the other one is to be avoided at almost all costs, we really should understand the difference between the two and what that really means. So remember, light and dark are not defined in our case, in the spiritual case, as either the presence or absence of optically visible radiation, right, or photons, as I taught last week. It's a condition. It's a state of being, more so of the heart and of the spirit, but it's a condition, a state of being. Now, conversely, darkness is a state of ignorance, either willful or I'll use the term circumstantial, either willful or circumstantial ignorance that leads to walking the, simple, the sinful path that leads to death and bondage to the things that cause it. So light then, the light is a state of spiritual awakening whereby sin and wickedness has no place to hide because it has been exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what the light is. And our bondage to sin will be broken instantly when we shine the light of Christ on it. Why then do we continue to go back to the broken shackles and try to put them back on our ankles? Another message for another day. But it's been a problem since the very beginning. The light of Jesus is the truth. The light of Jesus is the truth. And the truth, church, will set you free. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Can I get an amen virtually out there and, and home wherever you are? The truth will set you free. But many are misled by thinking that the truth can somehow be attained by other means or by the thinking that knowing God alone will be enough. Oh, I know God. I have a relationship with, I know of God. I know him. We're tight, God and I. We're good. Or maybe they think that they can attain it by yet another degree or yet another Bible study or yet another whatever form of education they take to educate themselves on what Christ is or who Christ is. Now, I'm not diminishing the importance of those things, but it doesn't substitute for knowing Christ and knowing the light in him. So when Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, who's he speaking to? Question for all my Bible scholars out there. When he said that word, who was he speaking to? Do you know? 
He was actually speaking to Pharisees. Pharisees who had literally the good and the bad. Pharisees weren't just all evil, dark people. They just didn't have the light. They knew God. They sought and they craved with all their heart a relationship with God, but it was skewed because it didn't have the light applied to it. These people knew God. They followed God. They did the best they could in their human flesh to follow the commandments of God. They studied night and day. So you can say they knew God, but somehow he still had to speak to them and say, you need the truth, and that's what will set you free. So after, the, after he says this, going on, John 8, the next scripture here, they answered him. This is the Pharisees replying back to him. We're Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they're going back to the scriptures that they knew and that they had been taught in their tradition. Hey, we were set free already. God set us free from slavery and bondage when he delivered us out of Egypt. We're good. But knowing God is in itself not enough to walk in the light. They thought it was. They thought that that's all it took. But the knowledge of good and evil, which was gained all the way back in the garden, that knowledge without the light of Christ to shine in mercy Forgiveness and grace can only lead to sin when we try and implement our knowledge of good and evil. When we try to judge those things in our flesh, it leads to pride, it leads to judgment, to strife, to division, everything but love. And you can only have that if you shine the light of Christ on it. If you remember all the way back from our Job series when we were teaching, facts and law do not combine to make truth. Facts are just, they're just dead, inanimate things. When you combine those with the law, they don't bring life, and they don't bring light, and they are not truth in as of themselves. They need to have wisdom applied to them, wisdom that can only come through the Holy Spirit. In that case, it becomes truth, and that's what Jesus came to bring us, is that wisdom through the Holy Spirit to which we can apply to the law and then we can know the truth. Let me show you how this works. So this last conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, if we take that kind of in context, Jesus had come, and Jesus was actually in the courtyard of the temple, and he was teaching. Scripture says he was teaching. And as he was teaching in the temple, a crowd started to gather around listening to the teaching. I'd imagine it happened to Jesus pretty much everywhere he went. And the Pharisees got word of this. So the Pharisees decided they want to try and trap Jesus in his own words, try and get him to, to, to make his own cage, so to speak. So they present him with a woman who was literally, Scripture says, caught in the act of adultery. That's to avoid any question, was she guilty of that or was she innocent of that? She did it. She was caught in the act. Scripture, de scripture declares that. So we know that, but he brought, they brought this woman to Jesus, presented to her, to him, and asked him this question, okay? John 8, 5 says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, when they say, now the law, Moses commanded us, that's from Deuteronomy 22, 23, 24. If you want to read that, that's chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, 
Read that for yourself if you want to. But then it goes on, John 8, 6. Now they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, if you have the King James Version, mine's New American Standard, just to remind everybody, the King James Version adds, as if he did not hear them. So you picture Jesus, he's down here, and he's writing something in the sand, and he's pretending like he didn't even hear what they're saying. The woman's there, they're probably all gathered around, and they're presenting this woman, and he's just doodling in the sand, or whatever it is that, he, that he's doing there, right? That had to just infuriate them. And there are many, many theories. This is one place where sometimes Bible study and Bible scholars can, can focus too much on something that's not really critical. Much, much debate, much scholarly um, study has gone into what was Jesus writing in the sand? What was he writing? It had to be something significant, right? Because after seeing what he wrote, they walked away. Let's look at that just, just a little bit more. So remember, if we go back, Jesus was teaching in the courtyard. Scripture says that, right? He was teaching in the courtyard when they came in. They didn't have chalkboards. They didn't have whiteboards, dry erase boards. They didn't have pro presenter and screens and electronics. They didn't have any of that stuff. What they typically did in rabbinical schools was they would bring in sand. And they would put it on the floor and they would spread it out real smoothly and they would write in it. And that's how, that was kind of their chalkboard, especially portable if you're out in the countryside, you're out in smaller places that don't even have any formal building. You could do that anywhere. And that's how they taught the law typically, by actually scribbling and writing in the sand. So Jesus is not, he's not in the process of here of like our Supreme Court does these days. They'll make a ruling and then they'll write their judicial opinion. They'll write an opinion paper on what, how they arrived at that judgment. Jesus isn't doing any of that stuff. He's just simply flat out ignoring them. They come in, make a big show of the presentation. He kneels down and he starts writing. He's just like, I don't even hear you. He might have said, talk to the hand. I don't know. But he's pretending like he doesn't even hear them. Maybe he really in his spirit didn't even hear them. And this must have infuriated them. So they ask him again. They ask him the same question again. Now, do you remember what Jesus replied? Those of you who are following along, you can, you can skip ahead and see exactly what he replied. But remember, he said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He's not saying the law is wrong. He's not saying forget about that. He's saying, hey, okay, whoever of you is without sin, go ahead. You be the first. And after that, he kneels back down. Or maybe he stayed back down and he continues writing in the sand. Now, again, much is given on what he wrote there. We don't know the words, but since it doesn't tell us, I conclude that it's not really important what he wrote. The fact that he was writing, ignoring their desire for an answer, ignoring their their want to try and trap him in something, he just continues to write. And here's what's interesting. He just lets the sweet conviction sink in. And hearing those words from him, seeing his lack of interest in pursuing the the persecution of this woman, it convicts them. And they see it. And one by one, it says they start to just back away, disappear into the background. 
and just walk away. Jesus does not condemn. Jesus didn't come back at them with anger. He just let that sweet silence just convict them. In the question that he asked, he didn't even make a statement. It was a question. Are any of you without sin? Then go ahead, be the first one. That's why in this series leading up to Easter, we're looking at this idea of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through the lens of Jesus being the light of the world and that light being the wisdom, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that can shine on those places of darkness, those places of legalism, those places that lead to death through this darkness of ignorance and bring life to them. That's what Jesus can do. This is where our scripture for the title series, series title comes from, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that tells us what we need to know about who Christ is. Jesus is the light of the knowledge of the glory and mercy of God come in the flesh. That's what we celebrate here. The coming of the Messiah has always been, from the very beginning through through prophecy and scripture, the coming of the Messiah has always been synonymous with the coming of light to remove darkness, to remove darkness, to break the chains of captivity. And the promises and signposts have been there all along. I like to think of prophecy as, as a signpost. You see it, and that signpost may mean you're here. Congratulations, city limits, you're there. It may also mean coming soon. It may also mean 100 miles from now. I remember leaving Denver one day to drive all the way out to the West Coast and just seemed like a few miles out of town, I see a sign that says, Los Angeles, 890, I forget how many miles it was. But that's a long way away. That's not, okay, I better turn on my blinker because we're going to those signposts can be immediate or they can be later. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But Peter taught the importance. Again, the first century church after Pentecost, he taught in that first century church the importance of comparing what you see, what you see happening around you. This will be out of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. What you see around you, comparing that to the word, and by that you'll know the truth. Now, he's speaking to a combination of believers, Jews and Gentiles, so Jewish converts and Gentiles that are mixed in this church. So 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says it right there, and it's something that people say this about Christianity all the time or about the Bible. Oh, you're just a bunch of guys got together and made this clever story about how we're going to do things. And he's saying right here, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. We were eyewitnesses to Christ. And then just a couple verses later, a few verses later, 2 Peter 1.19, we have that on the screen here. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's saying the prophetic word is sure, but now that we've seen the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ, it's even more sure. But it's that comparison of what we're seeing with the word that gives us that surety. 
And if we go back even to, to Old Testament scripture, I like, I like to preach about the Old Testament. I like to emphasize the Old Testament because by our knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, we can then test what we see today. And we can know that ever since the very beginning of time, this has all been a part of God's plan. It gives me great comfort and it lends authenticity to what we read in the rest of Scripture. But the prophet Isaiah was particularly prolific, if you will, in his words about a coming Messiah who would deliver his people from the bondage of darkness. Now, at the time when Isaiah prophesied, the kingdom was divided, okay? Northern kingdom, Israel had gone into uh, had gone into captivity. They had been captured, defeated, taken away into captivity, and there was a, a southern kingdom there uh, of Judah that, that Isaiah pretty much ministered to and prophesied to. But after seeing what happened to their neighbors to the north, they were particularly fearful and worried that they might be next. Their enemies were all around them. Perched on every border was an enemy of Judah, and they they needed something to give them some comfort because some Things were coming down the pipe that looked really bad for them, and they needed comfort. If you want to read that, read 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32. Just read those on your own sometime. It kind of talks about what's going on in Judah at this time when, when Isaiah was prophesying. And Isaiah began, let's talk about Isaiah really quickly here for a minute. His career as a prophet began somewhere around 739 B.C. or so and went to about 680 81 uh, BC. That's about 60 years in his prophesying career. He didn't just pop on the scene one day, deliver a couple words, and disappear. He was around for a long time until he was finally killed. Uh, King Manasseh had him killed in a kind of gruesome way. You can read about that in Scripture if you want to. Um, But the important thing is here, he was around for 60 years, which meant there was plenty of time for people to hear what he said and then watch and wait to see if it came true. To watch and wait and judge and see, is he really a prophet of God? Because are these things really happening that he was saying? Idolatry and false teaching was rampant at the time, and really the people had to listen to Isaiah and judge for themselves. Now, most of what he said was encouraging, but by way of warning. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, I'll read this part for you. It's a little bit longer. He's talking, again, talking about Judah and talking about the help that's on the way. Help is on the way. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he, the her is Israel, by the way, or Judah. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, the the specifics are there. That's quoted actually directly in Matthew chapter 4, verses uh, 15 and 16. Matthew quotes that directly. And Matthew is using the part where it says uh, the Jordan, the Galilee, and the Gentiles, talking about Naphtali and Zebulun. That is a picture of basically of pagan areas, pagan Galilee region. And he's portraying Jesus as the fulfillment, Matthew is, portraying Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision right here, meaning that Jesus was sent for both the Jews 
and the Gentiles. Only when Isaiah said that back at the time, that would not have registered. It probably didn't mean much to them at all. If anything, they would just question what he was saying. Whatever it was, whatever it really meant, didn't really concern the people of Judah. It was like, all right, we like the part about a light shining on us. We like the part about getting help from the Lord, but all that other stuff, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what that means. Kind of like prophecy we hear today sometimes, right? Some of it immediately registers and some of it doesn't. Judah had been trying and often failing, more often than not, really, the nation of Judah, trying to remain true to God, but just failing an awful lot. They thought, really, for the most part, that their chosen status would save them from sin. But they were wrong, and the fruit was showing all around them. Again, enemies at the gate, perched on the doorsteps, ready. But the Lord God delivers a promise now, an encouraging promise through Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 16. Got it on screen. I will lead those who are blind by a way they have not known. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn darkness into light before them and uneven lands into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. That's God speaking through Isaiah to the people. That would be so encouraging. Can you imagine if you're in this place of just daily terror, wondering what's going to happen next, much like today, to know that there's that promise out there, promise from God. And this nation, this nation of Judah at the time, desperate for a Messiah. Now, their vision of a Messiah was a warring, powerful warrior who would come in and lay literal physical waste to their enemies. That's what they expected. That's what they prayed for. And every time they heard a prophecy talking about the coming Messiah, that's the picture that they had in their head. But Isaiah says this, Isaiah 58, 8. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will spring up quickly, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of God will be your rear guard. Now that term rear guard, that's, a, that's very much a military term. And so Isaiah is evoking that, and they're thinking again, our warrior Messiah, sure, we'll have to go do the fighting, but he's going to be right behind us, and he's got our back. That's where that phrase comes from. He's got our back. This was exactly the image of the warrior Messiah that they were praying for, that they were hoping for, that they expected to find. They then, they heard these words and considered them to be for right then and there. They had no concept of next week, next month, tomorrow. They, they knew what they meant. They didn't have a concept, but they didn't see prophecy in the context of something that may not happen for a while. You can almost picture them as they hear this. Isaiah 60 Verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Arise, shine. That doesn't mean to me someday later on. That means this is happening right now. You can almost hear the clanking as they grab their armor and they take up their spears and they prepare and they get ready to go out into battle. You can just see that they're just ready to go. And then this is where the problem of prophecy comes in when it is not fully understood in context. And the problem is we will never fully understand the context until we see it fulfilled. We apply our idea of timing to God's word. In other words, we hear a word from God and we see our circumstances and go, okay, 
that word dovetails right in this place where I need it to. If, if I can just take that block of a word for God and plug it right in here, that, then it all makes sense. We like to do that, but the problem is it's not fortune-telling. Prophecy can be near-term, can be short-term. There can, it can be both. It can be, that's a term called dual fulfillment. You can have prophecy that comes, that, that comes to pass right now today or tomorrow and then won't again for hundreds of years. And it's not until we look in the rear view that we can see that. That's why scripture is so amazing. It gives us that chance to go back and see those things. So for example, in Isaiah's career, again, we're following along with Isaiah here a little bit. When the Assyrians, again, one of those powerful enemies that are perched on the doorstep on the borders of Judah, when they threatened to destroy Jerusalem in 700 BC, they're coming through, threatened to destroy, they were defeated against all odds, supernaturally defeated. You can read that, Isaiah 36 through 38, chapters 36 through 38, it talks about that. Isaiah prophesied that, and it came to be right then. And through that, Isaiah gained massive credibility, right? He prophesied it would happen. It happened. Credibility for Isaiah. Another one, when King Hezekiah was healed, King Hezekiah had a really terrible uh, ailment, and he was healed just as Isaiah predicted. You can read about that in Isaiah 38, 5, and 2 Kings 20. Yeah, and read those things on your own. When that happened, just as he said it would, Isaiah gained credibility. When Isaiah named the future ruler of Persia, now this wouldn't come true uh, until after Isaiah's lifetime, but, but very, very close. When he named the future ruler of Persia, Cyrus, by name, Isaiah gained credibility. Read Isaiah 44 and 45 on that. When all these things happen, he prophesied it, it happened. He gained credibility, and through that, he became one of, the, one of the greatest prophets. But what about those times then when he prophesied something that didn't make sense in their day? What did they do? What do we do now when a prophet comes out and says something that we're like, eh, I didn't see it? We need to have an understanding and we need to have some protocols around being able to deliver prophecy and more than anything, it has to be delivered by the Holy Spirit first. If that's where it comes and we speak it out, it will come to pass and we'll have confidence that even if it takes hundreds or even thousands of years, it will come to pass. It's not fortune telling, it's not a roll of the dice. Listen to this, it's Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20. I'll read this part to you. Isaiah says, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor will the moon give you light for brightness. That sounds kind of ominous. But you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and your God as your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. If you heard that in context, 2,700 years ago, you'd go, I don't even know what you're talking about, Isaiah, but that sounds a little goofy to me. No sun, the sun won't set, the moon won't wax and wane. What are you even trying to say? But fast forward to the end in Revelation. Revelation 21, 23 says, and the city has no need of the sun. Talking about the new Jerusalem, heaven, come to earth. 
And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The light in New Jerusalem, the light in heaven, will emanate from the Lamb of God. There will be no need for a sun or a moon. And here, to date, 2,700 years, who knows how long before that comes to fulfillment, Isaiah prophesied that. What would they have thought? So that raises the question to me, I think about this all the time, how do you hold on to a promise from God when it doesn't pass your eye test? How do you hold on to a promise from God when it doesn't pass the logic test or it doesn't take place in the time frame that you think that it should? How do you hold on to that? That's one of the primary reasons, really, why the people of Israel missed the Messiah when he did come. When Jesus came into the world as the Messiah was crucified, died, and resurrected, they missed it. They missed him as the Messiah. In fact, they completely rejected him as the Messiah because they expected slash needed the prophecies that they had been taught from their entire life, generations of prophecies. They expected it to fit their vision of a conquering Savior. That's what they were looking for. And Jesus did not look the part. They expected certain timing, certain things to happen, because Scripture says these things will happen. Daniel prophesies there's much prophecy about the order that things happen in. All of the prophets talked in some extent or another about this. I'll give you a couple examples. Again, these are examples why a Jewish person would reject Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? So, specifically, the, the Tanakh, and if you ever talk to a Hebrew person or a Jew about Christ, don't call it the Old Testament. It's not old to them. It's their Bible. They call it the Tanakh. Tanakh. Now, here's what the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, says that will happen. The new Messiah <coughs> will build the third temple. That's from Ezekiel 37. He will gather all Jews back to their homeland of Israel. That's from Isaiah 43. He will usher in this new era of world peace, universal world peace, and end to all hatred, oppression, suffering, disease. That's from Isaiah 2. He will spread universal knowledge of the God of Israel, which will unite humanity as one. That's from Zechariah. Zechariah 14 talks about that. So all these things had to happen, and there's more. All these things had to happen before you could point to and say, that's the Messiah, the person who would orchestrate these things. And if an individual failed to fulfill even one of those things, he couldn't be the Messiah. And that's the struggle that the Hebrews have had for years looking at this. Christians respond to that dichotomy there, that, that idea, by, by saying that they'll be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. We look and they say, hey, everything that was supposed to have happened by now did, but there are things that won't happen until the second coming. Well, the Jewish people have no idea of a second coming. They're not looking for part two or the second act of Christ. They think it all takes place at that time, at one time. And this is why they struggle with that. The Messiah will fill the prophecies outright. Okay, so in general... 
They also believe that declaring that Jesus is God in the flesh minimizes his deity, the deity of Christ, uh, a suffering servant Messiah and not a warring Messiah. That's a hard no for most Jews. They're like, no, our Messiah is going to come in and kick butt and take names. That guy, Jesus, doesn't look like him. So I want to wrap this up. I want to conclude this message here by asking just how, how does this idea tie in to Jesus Christ being the light? How does that tie in? So remember the definition of darkness that I gave you. Remember that? The definition of darkness. Darkness is a state of ignorance, either willful or circumstantial, that leads to walking the sinful path that leads to death and bondage and the things that cause it. And we know that before Jesus returns, the world will embrace darkness. We know that. We see that happening sometimes today. Idolatry, legalism, division, and the rejection of Jesus will become the normal. In many ways, it'll become the cool thing to do. Everybody's doing it. Believing the prophecies and promises in the word of God, we know that before Jesus returns, these things will happen. The Antichrist will rise, bringing an increase of darkness and an, and an adaptation to it. We will all learn to adapt to this darkness, or in some cases, even make accommodations for it. Church, this is why we study the word, to know the signs when we see them, to know the difference between a promise from God and a promise from man. That's why we study. That's why we emphasize the prophetic around here. That's why we have the workshop, the learning to perceive and hear workshop that's going on next weekend. Please, if you have this on your heart, sign up for it. It is such an amazing class, and it will give you a new understanding of how we operate in prophecy today and hearing from God and perceiving God's presence. It's important. Know that. So anyway, we study so that we can do that, so that we can see the world through the light of Christ, not the skewed lens of either our expectations or what the world says that he's going to look like. We will know. When we see the truth, we will know it because the light of Christ will illuminate that in a way that we can't ignore. And then we'll be able to apply the truth, the truth of Jesus in a way that does not lead to death, but instead glorifies God. The only way to be free of the bondage to the law and the sin that can come from it is the light of the truth that is Jesus and have that applied. Like Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Church, that's what I'm going to celebrate this Resurrection Sunday. In fact, I think the whole world should rejoice with us, but we know, we know that many won't because the light of Christ can be offensive to so many. Next week, that is the message for next week as we're going to talk about why the light of Christ is so offensive to many in this world and why they refuse to accept him. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your, for your leading, for your word, for your spirit in us, for giving your son Jesus to us so that by his sacrifice we are reconciled to you. We have the infilling of the Holy Spirit by which then we can see lies and we can see them through the light of Jesus. We no longer have to be misled. We no longer have to be tied in bondage to the sin of darkness. 
So Lord, help us to see those times when we willingly walk back into bondage. We have been set free by the truth of Jesus, and yet we walk back into bondage. Lord, help us see those places where we have willfully placed ourselves back into slavery to sin. Lord, we repent of not glorifying you in the things that we do because of our our need somehow to put ourselves into bondage. Father, help us to walk in the light. We praise you for the light. We praise you for Jesus. And we praise you for who you are. We pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're out there online, I realize everybody's online today. We have our board, Jesus Is. If you have something that Jesus means to you, so when I say the phrase Jesus is, if that registers with you and you have something, put it in the chat boards. Any of the platforms that you can watch on, have a chat board. Put it in there. Jesus is. And put your response in there. And we'll transfer it over to the board here to make sure that it gets there. If you have prayer requests, put your prayer requests down. We also have one thing, and I realize you can't do it online, but if you're live in service next weekend, we have these books, The Case for Easter. It's by Lee Strobel. Very easy, easy read. And if you're one of those people or maybe know somebody who is a skeptic, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because for centuries, people have been trying to prove that it didn't happen. If you're skeptical or not sure how to present those answers to somebody who maybe would ask you, grab one of those books. We have them in the back of the sanctuary. They are free. Okay? And if you're out there online and you can't absolutely make it here, put your, put your request. We'll, we'll message you. I'll get one into your hands. I will send it to you or I will deliver it to you if we need to. I want you to have the answers because the triumph of Christ over the grave is one of the most significant things that has ever happened in the history of mankind. And we need to understand it and share that light and that truth with people. But let's take communion together. If you're out there at home, you're all out there at home. Grab whatever you have. Let's celebrate together. Let's take communion. I'll give you just a minute. But while we do this, we don't just do it for rote. I don't want anybody to ever just do it because now's the time. I want you to think about, think about what you're doing. And what we're doing is we are celebrating what Christ did for us, what Christ accomplished not only through the cross but by his resurrection. And what he accomplished for us was victory over darkness. And by his broken body, we have that victory. So if you accept and you want to walk in the light that is that victory over darkness, take the body. In the blood of Christ, again, whatever you have, the element itself is not important. It's what it means to you. The blood of Christ signifies the cleansing of us from our sins. The atonement that Jesus accomplished for your sins on the cross washes you clean. Father God no longer sees you through the, the, the litany of things that we've done wrong, our failures, our sin. Through Jesus, he sees us as pure. And with that, we can walk in the light. If you accept that, take the blood. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you this day and every day. It's in his name. Amen. Thank you so much, guys.